In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. In the words of Acts, chapter 10, Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Today we find ourselves presented <clears throat> with the conjunction of two feasts of the Church which have over time come together. They are respectively the Epiphany and the Baptism of Christ. Familiarity with the conjunction should not, however, lead us to overlook that, in fact, this merits thought. On the one hand, we might exactly wonder what comprised the manifestation we call the Epiphany. What event? While on the other, we might wonder quite how we have suddenly moved from the story of Christ's birth to the, the event perhaps 30 years later of his baptism. In a manner of speaking, the baby Jesus is in the manger next to his parents and being adored by the shepherds and the magi in one moment, and then liturgically the next thing we hear is that he's an adult receiving baptism from the complex figure of John the Baptist the next. And if that was not enough to think about, why did Jesus even need to be baptized at all? Since, as the Son of God and both human and divine, and as such perfect, we know he was without sin, which is to say immaculate. It is striking in the light of all this that John the Baptist directly addresses the oddity of this situation, of his baptizing Jesus, when he first states after an initial hesitation, I need to be baptized by you, and then asks, and yet you are coming to me. Why indeed? One way to look at this would be to recognize that in fact Jesus did not need to be baptized, but he went to John because we do. This points towards one of the ways in which this moment was so important. For in this action, we can think of Jesus as having gone to John the Baptist to take on the baptism of repentance, not for himself, but for us. And thereby, he takes on the sins of the whole world, as the Eucharistic prayer we shall shortly hear puts it. As the late Pope Benedict observed in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, I quote, Jesus loaded the burden of all mankind's guilt upon his shoulders. He bore it down to the depths of the Jordan. And thereby, he also, we should note, inaugurated his public activity by stepping into the place of sinners. His inaugural gesture is thus an anticipation of the cross. This serves to remind us that it is from this point forward not the crucifixion itself alone that Jesus begins to undertake the work of salvation and sacrifice by stepping into the place of us, we sinners. Both his life and his death were lived for us. Again, the importance of this event is reflected by the fact that all four of the Gospels relate this episode in which we are also enabled to see the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, 
between the Father and the Son together with the use of the title Son of God. Multiple signs of God's presence are presented in the narrative. The heavens were opened. The Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove. The dove being in the Old Testament a powerful symbol of the arrival of good news. Remember, it goes all the way back to the story of Noah, when a dove brought the news that the flood had ended. And lastly, a voice from heaven spoke, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Thus expressly confirming Jesus as the son of God. So it is that from this point on, the gospel writers, having related almost nothing of his prior life aside from the infancy, hereafter present the life of Christ as utterly remarkable and wondrous, such that those who had known him before marveled at the transformation. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, as Mark relates? Thus was it, we see, a time when it was inaugurated, a time in, at, the, at the time of his baptism, the path to the new life of grace, which he opened for all humanity ultimately made possible through his sacrifice on the cross. And that should speak to each of us in turn, as we recall that our lives as Christians began with repentance and baptism too, just as Jesus' public life and mission began in the waters of the Jordan. Moreover, the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, and so too does the Spirit come to us at ours. And the parallelism does not end there, for Christ lived his life in union with the Father through the Spirit. We too are called to live in union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. And again, there is a parallel in that Jesus became incarnate and was thereby able to share in our lives and indeed take up the burden of our sin. So too, by virtue of the offer of redemption made possible through his sacrifice, we are invited to share in his life and to enter in through him to eternal lives, freed from the burden of sin and the consequent alienation from God our sin entails. With all that said, it's very clear why the baptism of Christ was both immensely important and also a key moment which disclosed, made manifest, who in fact Jesus was which is to say both human and divine, as also his relationship to God the Father, with the further reference to God as Holy Spirit, all of which is in continuity with the theme of manifestation and disclosure, which was captured in the Feast of the Epiphany, and the role, of course, of those Magi, who were able also to recognize what had been made manifest in the birth of Christ, namely the coming of the Messiah, long promised and foretold by the prophets. But beyond even that, in their coming, most likely from Parthia, modern-day Persia, and their seeing who and what Jesus was, we have to note that the Magi were obviously not Jewish. In other words, they were Gentiles which is why their presence in Bethlehem marked something so important for all of us as Gentiles too. Namely, that the salvation brought by Christ was available to all, not just the people of Israel. And that takes us right back to those words given to Peter in Acts. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him.
Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Yet, those words from Acts I have just quoted also bring us to another point. This week saw the funeral of Pope Benedict, whom I quoted earlier, at which his successor preached a short homily, which prompted me to recall the homily of Pope Benedict at the funeral of his predecessor, Pope John Paul II. They make, I should add, a deeply interesting exercise of comparison and contrast, should you want to look them up. To my surprise, there in the middle of the sermon by the then Cardinal Ratzinger at the funeral of John Paul were precisely the words from the book of Acts I've just quoted. And they were placed beside a second quote, which read, My brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved, from Philemon. These words prompted me to dwell upon three particularly interesting features of the late Pope's pontificate and thought, his engagement with other faiths on the one hand, and his sometimes, I have to say, almost sectarian spirit on the ecumenical front, while most interesting of all was his skillful diagnosis of the postmodern malaise, and his perspective on why analysing that matters can be found as far back as 1977, when he was elected Archbishop of Munich. He chose then as his motto, cooperatores veritatis, co-workers in the truth. The phrase is actually taken from the third letter of John, chapter 8, where the writer is congratulating the priest Gaius, the recipient of the letter, for welcoming fellow believers, evidently evangelists, even though they were strangers, saying, it is our duty to welcome men of this sort and contribute our share to their work for the truth. Thus, the then Archbishop Ratzinger saw his ministry as that made clear as a bishop in terms of welcoming and helping others who work for the truth, something he saw as dangerously threatened by the dictatorship, he liked to call it, of relativism. Addressing participants at a congress in the Diocese of Rome in 2007, he, straight, he stated that today a particularly insidious obstacle to the task of educating is the massive presence in our society and culture of that relativism, which, recognizing nothing as definitive, leaves us and leaves as the ultimate criterion only the self with its desires. And under the semblance of freedom, it becomes a prison for each one, for it separates people from one another, locking each person into his or own, her own ego. Lurking beneath such views, he saw continuity with an argument going back all the way to the 4th century pagan senator Symmachus in his address to the Roman Emperor Valentinian II, seeking restoration of the statue of the goddess Victory to the Roman Senate. And he suggested in his speech at the time it's the same thing that we all worship. We all think the same. We look up at the same stars, this one sky above us, one world around us. What difference does it make with what kind of method the individual seeks the truth? We cannot all follow the same path to reach so great a mystery. Ratzinger comments after quoting this, that's exactly what the Enlightenment is saying to us still today. We do not know the truth as such, yet in a great variety of images we all express the same thing. 
so great a mystery as the divinity cannot be fixed in one image which would exclude others to one path obligatory for all. And this, it is claimed, he went on to say, as tolerance. Must Christianity therefore give up the claim it made from the beginning to be the true religion, is the question he several times posed. If that sounds a bit academic, we do well to ponder a sharper context. In an important essay which he wrote, What is Truth?, which he wrote shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Cardinal Ratzinger explored the central question, or he would say central crisis of modern democracy, no less, and pointed out that the political community, if it's going to be anything other than anarchic, must have some rules. And we certainly hear lots about a rules-based international order. Even societies that place great emphasis on personal freedom must have laws, some of which place restrictions and obligations on citizens. Otherwise, freedom vanishes as one person's freedom crashes into or supplants that of another. Yet to have laws is to make a decision about what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false. In light of this, the question then becomes, what is the source of these judgments about what is good and what is true? Is this to be decided by a majority or some kind of consensus? In which case, how is that itself determined? And yet more exciting as an issue is the further question of whether there is somewhere some kernel of truth that is ultimately a given and therefore received from outside the political process. Ratzinger, in his essay, offers two contrasting understandings by way of illustrating his points by, of the trial of Jesus, since there the question of the relationship between political power and truth is center stage. As we know, in that trial, in response to Christ's statement that he came into the world to bear witness to the truth, Pilate responds enigmatically, what is truth? One response, Ratzinger notes, is to see here that Pilate exhibits the traits that are absolutely essential for the modern politician. The question, what is truth, is raised by a man who despairs of any answer because for him truth is unattainable. This is confirmed by the fact that Pilate does not wait for the answer, but turns immediately to the crowd. He leaves it to the people to decide the disputed question by means of their vote. Does he act here as a perfect Democrat? Since he himself does not know what is just, he leaves it to the majority of others to decide. If so, what is so disturbing about this way of acting is the way it ends with the condemnation of an innocent man. An alternative exegesis of the trial focuses on the words of Jesus that Pilate would have no power over him unless he had received it from above. Here, Jesus is at once affirming the reality of political power and pointing out its relative character. Political authority is not self-contained or self-justifying. Rather, it receives something essential to it from without. This inheritance from above includes precisely that kernel of moral truth we might therefore suppose mentioned earlier. So then, the question becomes whether such perennial and universal moral principles are enshrined in the natural law, for example. And is it only within the bounds that thus provided 
that political authority can be rightly exercised. Ratzinger concludes that Pilate falsifies his power and hence also the power of the state as soon as he ceases to exercise it as the faithful administrator of a higher order that depends on truth. So, in these two interpretations of the trial of Jesus, then, are the two options, truth that is equated with majority opinion or a consensus, in this case the truth of a crowd, or truth that ultimately comes from outside, one might say perhaps from above, the political process. Here it's important to understand that Ratzinger, in his wider view, held that Christianity came to see itself as not merely one religion among others, but as representing, as he puts it, the victory of perception and knowledge over the world of other, the other. But crucially, this was not simply the victory of some kind of abstract truth. Rather, because of the central place of Jesus Christ, the infant born at Christmas, as both God and man in the Christian understanding, it enabled the so-called God of the philosophers to be personal, as well. For in Christ, Christianity had a God who spoke to man, who approached him, who entered into history. To quote, he has entered into history, has come to meet man, and thus man can now go to meet him. He can unite himself with God because God has united himself with us. This link of metaphysics and history is what enabled the apology for Christianity as the religio vera, the true religion, to be so effective. Moreover, it had the advantage of displaying what Ratzinger called the moral seriousness of Christianity, wherein what the law really means, those essential demands of the one true God upon human life that have been illuminated by the Christian faith, is identical with what is written in the heart of man, of every man, so that he can recognize the good when he meets it. It is identical with what is good by nature. Here, as elsewhere, St. Paul is echoing the Stoic philosophers, though now transformed by the example of Jesus Christ's love. Christianity conquered the world not only by link linking faith with reason, but also by going beyond an ethical theory to moral practice that was lived out in community and was summarized in the dual commandments we hear so often, to love God and our neighbor, and translating that into practical action. Looking back, we can say that the power of Christianity, which made it into the world, religion that it became, consisted thus in its synthesis of reason, faith, and life. And it is precisely this synthesis that is summed up and expressed in the term religio vera, as the Pope put it. Christianity conceived in this way is rooted in the primary in the primacy of reason and the logos, of which we are reminded in the prologue of St. John's Gospel, we hear as the last gospel. For Ratzinger, this entailed, it could, paradoxical as it might first seem, rescue the Enlightenment tradition from undermining itself. As Ratzinger and the philosopher Habermas observed, and he was one of the greatest modern defenders of the Enlightenment, they agreed at the end of their famous debate in Munich in 2004, reason needs revelation, as much as revelation needs reason. For Ratzinger, relativism could only produce ultimately anarchy and nihilism in individuals. While, whereas for him, Christianity carried within it the conviction that man's being contains an imperative, the conviction that he does not himself invent morality on the basis of expediency, but rather finds it already present in things. 
In contrast to the angst, therefore, and the gloom of postmodernity, Ratzinger therefore saw in Christianity indeed the ultimate message of hope. Thus, just before his election as Pope, in discussion of what Christ meant when he commanded his apostles to bear fruit that would last, he explained it as love, knowledge, a gesture capable of touching hearts, words that open the soul to joy in the Lord. There could hardly be a better expression of how we should view the world and our lives in the light of Christ. After Christmas and in the spirit of the epiphany that made Christ manifest as the true light that came into the world. Amen.